let's generate our motivation. So when I was uh, a little kid, I used to look up into the nighttime sky. In those days, we lived in a place where you could see the stars at nighttime, not in a city like now. And think of like what was out there. And then when I encountered Buddhism, began thinking of all the sentient beings out there. And so many of them having so many different experiences right now. And the infinity of the universe and the countless number of sentient beings. And I find that that, uh, just thinking like that really helps my mind. It takes the focus off of me. And it reminds me that I'm just one small, tiny particle who can make some difference. And so it's my responsibility to work with my own mind. But I can't control everything. And what happens to me is one small thing. It's not the whole universe. And it's actually quite a relief to take the pressure off of always thinking about me. How do I appear to others? What do they think of me? Did I make a mistake? Will they forgive me? Will I forgive myself? What am I doing with my life? Should I do that? Should I do this? Should I do the other thing? Yeah, what will I think about my choices later uh, when I look back at now? All this kind of mental chatter. It's exhausting. But when I read about the bodhisattva's compassion and how it extends throughout that infinity of space. Then the mind feels uplifted and encouraged. Interesting, isn't it? When we think of ourselves, there's pressure, stress, tension. When we enlarge our perspective to think of others, there's some space for being inspired and uplifted.
So let's turn our mind right now towards considering the situation of other living beings stuck in samsara, like we are. Their minds tightly bound by ignorance and not having met the Dharma, they have no path to remedy that situation. So with that, let's generate the bodhicitta and take on the responsibility of benefiting them and eventually having the capabilities to really lead them on the path. So do you have that experience of when you're thinking about me and going round and round that there's just so much tension and pressure in your, in your mind? It's incredible, isn't it? And when we're in the middle of it, oh, we don't recognize it. We just think this is the way it is. And why am I so stressed? Why, why are things like this? <laughs> and it's, you know... It's just the thought, but we make ourselves pretty miserable by that self-centered thought. So the last few days I've been, uh, Geshe Lat had uh, retranslated 108 verses on compassion, and he asked me to do a little bit of editing. And I was going through the, the verses, and as I read each verse, I just felt happier and happier happier, you know. And even though when you think about what bodhisattvas do, I mean, my goodness, I, I worry about what I can and can't do now, what I'm capable of, you know. And what bodhisattvas do is like a gazillion times more than that. And yet, just even reading about having that kind of uh, mental attitude and control over your body and mind so you can live that way. Uh, just even thinking of that possibility uh, makes the mind very happy. Mm-hmm. So I think bodhicitta is a very good um, protection against depression. Yeah? And if you have a tendency towards depression, you know, reading something about bodhicitta every morning, just a few verses... It, it, you know, it's like, oh, it's not about me. What a relief. You know, you realize in one way it is about me because I can control my own mind. I can generate bodhicitta. And, you know, what I do makes a difference. But the whole world is not about me. 
wow, what a relief. You know? It is, isn't it? Because when we're so tightly trying to manage our own little universe, you know, this can happen, this can't happen. Yes, I want this, but I don't like that, and that's dirty, and you're in my space, and I want free time now, and you're telling me what to do, and I want this, and I can't get it, and it's totally exhausting. Okay. <laughs> I'm so afraid. I'm going to make mistakes. Oh, what happens if I make a mistake? It's the end of the world. You know, I'll never become Buddha. No, nobody will ever like me again. I'm horrible. Yeah. I use the wrong milk. Yeah, and the whole community's upset. I tracked in mud. Oh, disaster. If I slip in the mud, they don't care so much. If I track it, <laughs> if I track it in, they care. <laughs> okay. Okay. So so we're s- still on the verses where we were last last week. I don't even know. If maybe we did one verse last week. Oh, you sh- yeah. Okay, so two weeks ago. Yeah. See, that's what also happens when you get old. You need somebody to remind you of everything. <laughs> you know. <laughs> you read these things. You said we could, and you go, I did. <laughs> Okay, so verse 87. So here, you know, we're still in the part where uh, Deva is saying, just, you know, give up the self-centered mind that wants this and wants that and keeps us busy because we want to go here and do this and go there and do that. Let's go to Bali, you know, let's go skiing. Yeah, you nodded your head on that one. Okay. <laughs> But to get to Bali, you have to go through Jakarta. And if you've ever been in the traffic in Jakarta, although maybe now they have direct flights to Bali, maybe we should look into that. Do you know? Mm-hmm. By, by ferry? Singapore. From Singapore. A direct flight to Bali. A direct flight to Bali. Okay. Yeah. So in Singapore, if you're not hot enough, you go to bear <laughs> Bali to get warmer. <laughs> okay. So here it's, um, you know, finally relinquishing that mind, seeing that no matter where we go, our mind comes with us. Yeah. And, um, you know, it would be nice if our mind had border checks and, you know, sorry, anger, you cannot come in this country. (laughs) You know, you have to stay in uh, on the other side of the border, but it isn't like that. So we're the ones have to deal with this. Okay, so they dwell. So these people who have given up all of that, 
Oh, imagine giving up wanting to go to Bali. Think of what you want, what your vision of, I can do whatever I want and nobody's going to stop me. Yeah, what's your vision of doing that? What do you want to do? And you're dreaming, ah. And then what happens if you give up that dream? It doesn't mean that your life is completely useless now. I can't go to Bali and lay on the beach. So here the mind's really changed. It's not wanting that stuff anymore. It's wanting something different. So they dwell for as long as they wish in empty houses at the feet of trees and in caves, having abandoned the pain of clinging to and guarding possessions. They abide independent, free of care. Having abandoned the pain of clinging to and guarding possessions. That is exhausting, isn't it? You know, more possessions, more things you have to take care of, more things that are going to break, more things that you have to compare to what other people have to see if you have the latest, or at least better than what your friends have. And then when they break, when they dysfunction, all the pain in the neck with that. Yeah, as we've expressed, there's a refrigerator, you know, that, that doesn't work. There's the road, you know, the road that we thought was permanent until it rained and the trucks started going up and down like mad. And it is now a river of mud. Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can't go skiing, so I can slide down the mud. Yeah. I saw one of the workers almost doing that the other yesterday, you know, trying to go down the hill a little bit. And his feet weren't moving, but his whole body was sliding on that mud. Luckily, he stopped. Yeah. Okay. But uh, our, our clinging to possessions, are clinging to wanting our own way. Yeah. Can't I fill the water bowls later? Yeah. Like after practice. I'm more awake after practice. I'll make the offerings then. Sorry. No, that's not going to work. Yeah. So... They, uh, yeah, sometimes we even get trapped by our clinging to freedom. Yeah, I want to go here, I want to go there, and do this and that, and, and everything. Yeah, and our mind is so trapped by that craving for freedom to go travel the world do this and that you know in my day it was like the longer you were traveling yeah abroad the more status you had 
because whenever you went to a new place, you would meet all the other travelers at the tea shop, and everybody was telling their stories about where they were had been, where they're going, giving tips about where to stay and what to do and how to travel. And when you were a new traveler, oh my goodness, you didn't have anything to tell, you know. But then you met somebody who had been traveling for a year, and wow, wow, what they they could really tell some good stories, and they had all they knew everything about what hotels to go to go to and how to get from Delhi to here and there and what days to buy your tickets and and I didn't have anything. You know. But then as you traveled longer, you know, this really it was a big status thing. Yeah. And before that, traveling around in the country, yeah, your status thing was the patches you had on your jeans. Now they make the jeans and they tear them for you. And they patch them up for you. And then they charge more because they're torn and patched up. In my day, we had to wear out our own jeans. And, and it took some time to wear out your jeans. And if you had more patches of really cool fabric, your status went up. Yeah. But you couldn't put a patch if you hadn't gotten the hole. That was illegal. So you had to really work very hard to wreck your jeans to, you know, because that showed that you were climbing things and you were going here and there and, you know, doing all sorts of stuff. Yeah, it's amazing what, what we cling to for status, yeah, in whatever circle we are. Okay, so having abandoned the plane of clinging to and guarding possessions, they abide independent, free of care. That's another thing that maybe we should put on our uh, our mirrors for the times when we get really uh, hooked on some idea of doing something or of having something or going somewhere or whatever. Yeah, that we're trapped by that idea. Whereas when we give it up, we're free. 88, living as they choose, desireless, having no ties with anyone. Even the powerful have difficulty finding a life as happy and content as this. Then you say, oh, but that's what I want. Living as I choose, desirelessness. Well, uh No, I want the living as I choose part. The desireless part, mm, we got to negotiate that. Okay, because there are some things like that. I want to have the freedom to choose, but I don't, but I want the freedom to get all my desires met. And then we're trapped by our desires. Yeah. Even the powerful have difficulty finding a life as happy and content as this. We always think power means that you can just sit back and you just go. Yeah. Fix the border. Yeah. Bring me Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Actually, when you're powerful, you, you know, you usually have a lot of responsibility. No. Okay. Even the powerful have difficulty finding a life as happy and content as this. You know, for as much as I as I um, point out my disagreements with some politicians, I would not want to be a politician. I would not want that responsibility. I mean, especially, I think, uh, being president, the responsibility that you have for the, you know, welfare of so many beings. But then I think, but that's what I want, but not as a president, as a bodhisattva, you know. Because if you're president without being a bodhisattva, whoo, that is difficult, you know. And if you know anything about karma, it's really difficult. It's so easy to create negative karma if you have the power, but you don't have the compassion and you don't have the wisdom. Okay, 89. Having in such ways as this, as these, thought about the excellences of solitude, I should completely pacify distorted conceptions and meditate on the awakening mind. Okay, so like I said before, we want the choice, but without being afflicted without being afflicted by our desires, because we're able to fulfill all our desires. Okay? Uh, and here, Shantideva is saying, um, you know, in all these ways that he's done in the last 88 verses, in convincing us that following samsara and following craving is not going to get us anywhere good. Yeah than having thought about the excellences of solitude. So we take solitude to mean I'm going to be alone. Yeah. Um, when we go on retreat, we think retreat means I don't relate to other people. I just stay by myself. I don't speak. I'm doing retreat. Okay. Um, Zobar Rinpoche says that that's not retreat. Retreat is not from sentient beings. Retreat is not, yeah, it's not retreating from, from the world. Retreat is retreat from ignorance, anger, and attachment. That's what we're retreating from. Yeah. If we don't retreat from ignorance, anger, and attachment, we can stay by ourselves, but our spiritual progress doesn't necessarily develop. Yeah. Because we just isolate ourselves and then make our own little empire again, just with, you know, in a smaller way. But to isolate or put the mind in solitude or to retreat from ignorance, anger, and attachment that's much more difficult. Yeah. So when we do retreat, you know, this winter, as we do every winter, uh, to remember that, 
Of course, the retreat discipline that we keep of keeping silence and so on, that's important because people at our level, if we're involved in a lot of activities, then the mind is involved in a lot of activities. But the real purpose of having the external discipline is to have the internal discipline and to make sure that we, yeah, to make sure that our ignorance, anger, and attachment go into retreat and that they're not as prominent and forceful in our minds and in our lives. So when you wake up in retreat and, you know, I mean, you know how it is. We've done retreat before and some days you're just feeling very good and some days it's like, you know, you're like the cats hissing at each other and nothing has happened. Yeah. Or maybe one small thing happened. Yeah. Uh, they moved your, your place where you're sitting during lunch and you have to sit near somebody who makes a lot of noise when they eat. <laughs> and you're mad about that. <laughs> yeah, so you're in a bad mood and you're hissing. And, <laughs> you know, and then you have to say, And your mind is saying, they're disturbing my retreat. The one who slurps disturbs and the one who made me sit next to that slurper. They're also disturbing my retreat. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And, And then you have to stop and say, no, you know, I have to put my anger and my attachment into retreat. I'm not attached to sitting next to non-slurpers, you know, and I'm not going to be angry at slurpers. I mean, that's just slurpers smack smackers. (laughs) Yeah, or the people who eat, you know, crackers. Yeah, have you ever noticed it? Lines the people who eat crackers. The room is silent. You know, and I don't know why some people really make a lot of noise when they eat crackers. Some people are quieter, but some people, oh, the cracker noise is just, it's disturbing my mind. Yeah. And, you know, why don't they ban crackers? (laughs) Well, because there would probably be an uprising at the Abbey if we did. So, yeah, but to remember when these things happen, no, this is my mind, yeah. This this is not disturbing my mind. My ignorance, anger, and attachment are disturbing my mind. Yeah. Okay, so having found some degree of solitude, I should completely pacify distorted conceptions and meditate on the awakening mind. So he didn't say, you know, I've thought about the excellences of of solitude. I should completely do whatever I want and who cares? No, he doesn't say that. That's not why we want to pacify the mind or go into solitude. Yeah. It's to pacify the distorted conceptions 
What do we mean by distorted conceptions? Primary ones, ignorance, anger, and attachment, you know. And within ignorance, yeah, thinking that what is impermanent is permanent, that what is foul is pure, that what is um, suffering or not what is dukkha is actually happiness, and what doesn't have a self has a self. Okay, and to work at pacifying those and meditate on the awakening mind. You know, not meditate on I want, I want, I don't want, I don't want, I like, I don't like, give me, get away from me. But meditate on the on bodhicitta. Yeah, and uh, yeah, that's his prescription. Meditate on bodhicitta. And, uh, you know, in the 108 verses on, on great compassion, that's the prescription, too, at the end. Meditate on bodhicitta. Yeah. And when you think, you know, we've been in samsara beginninglessly, and how often have we meditated on bodhicitta? And how often have we meditated on me, I, my, and mine? Yeah? meditated on me, I, my, and mine, in quotation marks, single-pointedly. Yeah. <laughs> me, I, my, mine. Oh, me, I, my, mine, so hot. Oh, me, I, my, so hot. Oh, me, I, <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Verse 90. First of all, I should make an effort to meditate upon the equality between self and others. I should protect all beings as I do myself because we are all equal in wanting pleasure and not wanting pain. So here is going to directly to equalizing. Now, there's actually another meditation before that, which is equanimity. And equanimity and equalizing are different. Okay. So I think I explained this last time, but I'll go through it again. Equanimity is technically, uh, you know, eliminating the attachment to dear ones and the anger uh, towards enemies and people we don't like. I like to add within that the uh, eliminating the apathy towards strangers. Because I think in our society, we have a lot of apathy towards strangers. And uh, it results in a lot of, it actually creates disharmony. You know, when we don't care about the other people in the society, then it easily goes to disharmony and anger. So before going into the uh, equalizing meditation. I want to do the equanimity meditation. So some of you have um, have done. We've done this before. Some of you haven't. I think so. Uh, and it's good to do it repeatedly. This meditation because we have different people that fill the roles at different times. Okay, so. I'll lead you through it. Start off with just observing your breath, letting the mind settle.
So first think of somebody that you have a lot of attachment for. Maybe a relative, maybe a very dear friend, but somebody towards whom you have a lot of affection and you want to be with that person and being with them makes you happy. And then think of another person. So these are thinking of specific individuals. Think of somebody, we'll call them enemy, but it means somebody that you don't like, that you don't disapprove of, that has harmed you or who you feel threatened by, who you don't get along with. somebody towards whom you have a lot of antipathy or hostility. And then think of a stranger. Their face may not be so clear. Just somebody that you really don't have any relationship with. So you have a very... uh, mm, Yeah, you don't care much about them. They don't enter into your world. Now go back to the person that you're very attached to, where you have, you know, this very pleasant feeling you want to be with. And just ask yourself, why am I attached to this person? 
So there's no right or wrong answers. It's really important here that you're very, very truthful with yourself. Yeah, why am I attached to that person? Okay, then think of the person that you don't like, where there's a lot of anger, hostility, antipathy. And why do I have such a, um, so much aversion to that person? Somebody you hold, you hold, have a grudge against, whatever. Why?
And then think of the person, the stranger, who you don't really care much about. And uh, again, ask yourself, why do I have so much apathy regarding the strangers? Okay, so why are you attached to friends, relatives, dear ones? What, what answer did your mind give? Hmm? What? They support me. They love me. They're nice to me. They care about me. They agree with me. They share my values. I've known them a long time. Shared history. Yeah. What? I feel good when I'm with them. Yeah. How about the the enemy? People you don't like. Why such antipathy? Hmm? They threaten me. Hmm? They, they what? They make me miserable? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, they drive me crazy. Mm, yeah. They're so self-centered. And they point out my faults. They have what I want. Ooh. They get angry. They get angry. At me. Yes. Mm. What else? This is your chance. You go over it and over it in your mind. Now you have a chance to say it. <laughs> what? They're unfair to me. Their behavior stirs me up. Yeah. Their behavior stirs me up. It's disgusting. They use me. Oh, they use me. They manipulate me. They take advantage. They take advantage of me. Very unfair. And how about the stranger? Why so apathetic? Yeah, they're irrelevant. 
don't affect me. I don't know anything about them. They're just like stones on the sidewalk, aren't they? Yeah. Except they're moving. And when we have to walk there, they're, all they are are like posts that we have to wiggle around to get to where we're going. Yeah. They don't serve me. They're just objects out there. I don't really care. Yeah, they don't have feelings. <laughs> okay. So in this whole discussion, what word do you keep hearing? Me? Me? Really? It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah? But when we think about the people, we think they're the ones with the excellent qualities. They're the ones with the awful qualities. They're the ones with no qualities, no feelings. But in actual fact, how we evaluate them is in terms of how they relate to me. Yeah. Not really so much about the qualities. We think it's about qualities they have, but it's more about how we relate to me. Because, yeah, if a friend offers some advice, you know, like sees you do something and says, oh, you know, be careful about this. We feel like, oh, they care about me. They're warning me about some danger that I could get myself into. But when somebody we don't like says, you know, gives us advice, it's like poison, you know. What are you telling me what to do? And when somebody we who's a stranger gives us advice, it's like, stop wasting my time. Okay, it's very interesting, isn't it? You know, if if somebody, because we think the good quality is in them, yeah. But if somebody praises me, they're a good person, wonderful person, kind person. If they praise my enemy, then. They they go immediately into the enemy camp because they are don't they don't understand they are closed minded they are bigoted you know they're a jerk okay but the quality of being able to praise people is the same quality if they show that quality to me they're wonderful if they show that quality to somebody I don't like that same person becomes awful. Okay? If they, if they praise my enemy, oh, that's about the worst thing somebody can do. You know? You praise somebody who harmed me. You know? They criticize. If they criticize, yeah, my... I'm sorry, if they... 
Yeah, if they praise my enemy, that's horrible. If they praise me, then they're wonderful. If they criticize my enemy, right on, go for it. If they criticize me, like, oh, why are they picking on me? They have nothing better to do. They're a jerk. Okay? So you see what I mean? We think that it's because of the qualities the other people have. But it's really, if they have a good quality and they show that good quality to me, then they go on the friend cop category. If they show that same good quality to somebody I don't like, then they go in the enemy column. If they are angry at me, they go in the enemy column. If they're angry at somebody I don't like, it's like right on. Okay. So what we begin to see is how we have categorized people into friend, enemy, and stranger is not really in accord with who they are. Yeah, because anyway, they have so many different qualities, we're not really sure who they are. But it all depends on how they relate to me. Why? Because I'm the center of the universe. And how everybody relates to me is the criteria of their value as a living being. Is our mind very fair? Is our mind, do we have an open mind about human beings? Anybody? Mm-mm. Who's the bigot? That's an intense word. Let's change the subject. Yeah. But, you know, do you have stereotypes? some stereotype of certain kind of people that you just don't want to be around. Yeah. We don't know them. I do not like them. I do not want to be around them. And yet, what's so interesting is if you find yourself in a totally different situation with that person, you might actually get along with them quite well. When we were doing this, I was thinking, for the enemies, I was thinking two different people. One was one particular politician, okay, um, a young one, not, 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 not the usual one I pick on. Um, <laughs> yeah, but another one, yeah, the 2.0. Um, I, I, so I was thinking him, and then I was thinking of um, a, a white nationalist with his armor and his AK-47, AR-15, you know, and body armor and the whole thing, walking down the street. Okay, those were the two people I thought of. And, you know, I just even visualized them and instantly this feeling of, I don't like them. They're awful. They are awful. 
Yeah. And I have all my reasons for why they're awful. And the reasons don't just concern me. The reasons concern what they're doing to other people and this country. So my hatred is justified. Mm. Because that's all they are. That, you know, white nationalist, that is all he is, all he will ever be. There's no redemption. Okay? That's the way my, the mind looks at it when we have somebody that we don't like. Maybe somebody we quarreled with years ago. Yeah, can you think of somebody you quarreled with years ago? And every time you think, you haven't seen that person in years, but you have a very fixed image of who they are now, even though you have no idea because you haven't seen them in maybe a decade or two decades or 50 years or whatever it is. But they are like this, and I am sure, and I still cannot stand them. And yet, we think that we're open and fair-minded and forgiving people. Okay, but actually, we just build up these these images, and then, you know, put somebody in a category, and that's the whole meaning of their life. And we don't say that's the meaning of their life to me. We say that's the meaning of their life. Period. Mm-hmm as if we are the arbiter yeah, of judging the value of other people's lives, of evaluating their character. Because I was thinking of the people, you know, the people that, that make me afraid, you know. I mean, the guy with his military where, where in, the, in the militia, yeah, in Idaho, probably, somewhere. I don't know. Um, but if I met that person in a totally different situation, yeah, then I could have a good discussion with them, and we would probably get along. You know, if I was in a car that got a flat tire and they pulled over to help, because those people, they are kind in, in situations, you know, they can pull over to help and they help us with our flat tire. I would be so grateful. I would say, wow, how kind they are. All these other cars went by. They stopped and helped us change the flat. Yeah. So in a totally different situation, then you have a very different relationship with them. And this is one thing that I really saw a lot when I was traveling, is that, you know, certain people say, but then I would find myself traveling, and I needed a companion, and I, they were happened to be on the same train or the same bus, and, you know, would you look after my, my stuff, you know, can you wait here and watch this while I go do that? And, you know, we help each other throughout the travels. And then we start talking. And then, you know, we can have a good conversation. Yeah. It just has to be in, you know, I have to take myself out of that stereotype 
And often it has to be a different kind of situation. You know, if I started wanting to have a friendly chat with, you know, the, you know, some guy in the Oath Keepers or Proud Boys or something, when, when they are in the middle of, when they're together with all of their fellow Boy Scouts, you know, the fellow, um, you know, Proud Boys, you know, it would be difficult to have that, that conversation. But in a totally different situation, yeah. we could, and we could find something to talk about, and we could get along, and they wouldn't be threatening to me. Okay? So the, the point here is, you know, that we think friends, enemies, and strangers exist from their own side. That's who they are, objectively. Somebody is an awful person, objectively. Everybody will agree with me. Of course, everybody means all my friends who have the same opinion as me. Okay, we all agree that that person, so that makes them objectively like that. And this other person is just wonderful, objectively, because me and my friends, we all believe in it. And those people who criticize that person and who praise my enemy, those people are just, you know, they, they just don't know what's going on in the world. Yeah, they're filled with wrong views. So I just put them all with the enemy category or hope that they go back into the stranger category and I can forget about them. Okay. This kind of mind, there's no way we can generate bodhicitta with that kind of mind, is there? Yeah. With a mind that is partial, that is affectionate towards some, that hates others, that doesn't care about a third group, how are we going to generate bodhicitta that wants all those beings to have happiness and its causes? When we're sitting there hating our enemy and wanting them, we, you know, people even say, go to hell. Yeah, go, go get hit, on a, hit by a truck. Yeah. And go get hit by a truck. But I have bodhicitta for all infinite kind, mother-sending beings. Huh? If you think like that, your bodhicitta is, what do they say, mouth bodhicitta. Yeah, there's no, it's nothing more than the mouth. Yeah. So, you know, this is, is something really to look at. Who do we consider more important? Mm -hmm. And why are we so biased and prejudiced and bigoted? All those things that we hate in other people. I recently had an example of talking to somebody whose views I completely disagree with and I usually find harmful and dangerous, not only to me, but the world, everybody. Oh, yeah. But I really enjoy talking to this person, and I want to get to know them more. <laughs> and I'm like, what is going on here? Yeah, it was strange, and it made me realize how much I prejudge people and how closed I am. 
and I wonder when I picked that up. And, but it's so lovely to see that it can be different. Yeah. Um, I can have feelings of affection for someone whose views I don't have any affection for. Right. You can separate the person from their views and care about the person and say that you disagree with the views. Okay, other comments, questions, true confessions? Yeah. Um, after my BBC if, about a month or two ago, I, when I look at this meditation, it's the, the people that wear suits and ties that I have more suspicion and more aversion to than the ones that wear flannel shirts and cowboy boots. <laughs> so my bias is an interesting mixed from what you would assume knowing what the political narrative looks like right now. But I, if I see somebody come down the street with this dashing suit and tie and, and a briefcase and gets into an Audi, I have a lot more problems with that than seeing a big guy with a baseball cap get into an old beat-up truck and drive away. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh -huh. So the bias can run either way across the cultures. It's not yeah, like... totally. And you can change your bias from one time in your life to another time. You know, there might have been a, a time when you were younger, you know, when because your family thought the people with, with suits and ties and briefcases were, were really great, that you felt that way too. Two of us recently had the experience of going into a business, and the first thing that we saw were some posters about a particular politician that were quite rude and negative. And so immediately I thought, oh dear. And then when people saw the two of us in our robes, it was kind of like this reaction, like, and I thought, this is not getting better. <laughs> and so I was immediately thinking that this whole interaction would be the parting of ways quite quickly, just because yeah. we're just so different. And as we explained more about the project that we were thinking about them doing. Um, again, I was just, I was looking around the space. It was not very pleasant. It was dirty. And it sort of smelled of cigarette smoke. And I just thought, oh, we've got to get out of here. And then the conversation shifted. And the person who was the owner of the business said, we would be honored to do this for you. We would love to do this for you. And it's like the whole, it's like someone put on a light switch. And I was like, oh. <laughs> and I could feel myself, you know, softening towards this person that I was having big struggles with, just mm -hmm. the whole environment. And it can happen quite quickly. Yeah. But then he was telling me things that I wanted to hear. So, you know, it's not so, it's not so trustworthy, but... <laughs> You know, this shifting of the attitude can happen. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you were with her. I can see that she's talking and you're having emotions. <laughs> yeah. Was it like that for you too? Yeah, because of the political posters initially. <laughs> yeah. I just totally didn't expect a positive response. Mm. Yeah, and to and to think, oh, maybe us working together will bring some benefit, mm. both ways. Yeah, mm. yeah. But on this topic, I was thinking one of my big regrets about college was I never really got to know people with different views. 
mm. you know, college appears diverse. You know, I have friends from different races or whatever. But fundamentally, we share the same political views. I have yeah. a very clear memory of meeting someone who was the child of a, a politician who, you know, of a party that I do not agree with, um, was very good looking. You know, and we're sitting at some study hall session and we start talking about the war in uh, Afghanistan at the time. Mm-hmm. And I just assumed the whole world would be against the war. And of course not. You know, he's totally in support and his whole family is too. And, um, and, that just, and I just never spoke to him ever again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? I was like, I was just so shocked. I'm like, how could you support this war? Are you crazy? Um, and then I just wrote him off because of that one thought. And never spoke to anybody like that ever again. <laughs> it's so sad. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's interesting what you were saying about kind of having these very fixed views of people as well and assuming, you know, they'll never change. Um, one of my very good friends in high school, we, of course, because we were good friends, mostly had the same political views, except there was one issue we disagreed on quite strongly. And okay, so we just in general didn't bring that one issue up. And that was high school. And when I saw her after I was already living in um, Atlanta, so this is, you know, 15 years later or something, we're talking and we're about to go on to that topic. And then I say, oh, oh, right, right. But you believe this way. And she looks at me and she's like, it's 15 years. My views have changed. (laughs) So it was interesting in that other people, I would have completely written them off had they had that view. But in high school, it's like, well, she's my best friend, so it's okay. Uh And then I I just assumed that was a fixed part of her personality. And, you know, 15 years later, her political views had shifted slightly. Yeah. Um, I've learned my lesson not to speak about politics in Mexico at this time. (laughs) But now I'm learning my lesson not to speak politics in the U.S. as well because um, some people that are very close to the Abbey, they could have their own political views and uh, I don't want to disagree with them only because of their political views at all. I mean, but... If if you just if I just say the word Republican, then I can make a people, someone really mad and really like, in, react differently. So I learned my lesson here in the U.S. as well. <laughs> like that doesn't mean if I see someone doing something really bad, I would not talk about it, but. Not in a general matter. That's my point. Mm-hmm. I went to Spokane, I think a few months ago, with my Rajiv May to get some flowers, and then she dropped me off some shop that I've never been to. And then I went in and I thought, this is really strange. Why are there so many Christian things? But, you know, it was a nice shop, and the things were nice. And then at the counter, the cashier couldn't look me in the eye. But it was, she was nice, and it was the most comfortable place I could wait for her. Mm-hmm. And then when I got back in the car, she says, oh, I forgot to tell you, they were ex, kind of, I don't know, radical Christian, please. <laughs> <laughs> and then 
when I told somebody in the Abbey about it, they were like, how can you spend money in this place that has supported Trump? And I'm like, mm, so I hope the, whatever um, I spend there, the money would go into virtue and whatever non-virtue they do will fail. So <laughs> it's, mm -hmm. And I didn't have the same experience as Americans who know this shop have the politics and uh, all I saw was they had really nice things that could be offered to the Buddha. Ah. So it was uh, strange. There was a big contrast in how I experienced the place and how the people, the American, I mean the people here knew the place. Mm. Yeah. When we have a fixed idea and when we don't. You can see the difference, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because you didn't have a fixed idea, and they had nice things, and probably if you had started talking with them, you know, about the nice things they have, you would have had a really good conversation, you know, even though you're, you're offering those things to the Buddha, not to who they would offer them to. that in this indirect way they get connected to the the Buddhas. Yes. Because you know, it, it went through them. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I think that's the, the value of when we think may anybody who sees, hears, thinks, you know, and so on about me, may they, you know, may that be a connection with them. And that a, a connection between them and the three jewels. And that may be the only connection they have for eons and eons. You know, like when we do the, um, you know, recently we uh, did something with the high school, yeah, and the high school kids, you know, heard what some of the nuns were saying on, on Zoom. And, you know, those kids may never have any contact with Buddhism for eons, but that was some seed that's planted, so, yeah. Yeah. I had the experience one time, um, maybe a year or two ago, getting an email from somebody who um, was in a class that I led. Uh, there were students from Chapman University who went to Cloud Mountain. Uh, they had, I think it was a week or 10-day course, and they got credit for it. So he was in that course. I had forgotten all about him because it was like the, the course was in the early 90s. Yeah. And, and he said, you know, I went to that course and then I made some mistakes in my life, and I got arrested, and I was sitting in that cell, and I started thinking of the mantra that you had us chant, Tayata Om Muni Muni Mahamuni Asoha. And he said, and I, I chanted it inside, and that really helped me, and, you know, and we had some more contact and emails. Yeah? So you never know what's going to plant a seed, especially if you have a mind that is saying, just by this very average contact, may you know they uh, may it make a good impression on their mind that you know leads them to the dharma. 
So I think that a lot about the guys out here. Yeah, we don't talk politics, we don't talk religion. Yeah, but I think planting seeds. Yeah, they're building a Buddha hall. Wow. Huh? So, and if they ask us what we're building and why we're building it, we should talk about it. You know, it plants seeds, and they're interested. Okay, so um, so that's the equanimity meditation. You know, so when we're saying may all sentient beings have happiness in its causes, we're really meaning all sentient beings. Yeah, not just the ones that are nice to me, that have the same ideas that I do, that approve of me, that protect me, that I feel good around, and so on. Okay, and so, you know, how do we break down this bias and putting people in in uh, categories? Is one one is I know for me what's very powerful is seeing that it's coming from my mind and my judgment. And that is definitely partial and is definitely based on me, the center of the universe, and that I'm not seeing the completeness of this other person. Yeah. And so that helps a lot to suspend judgment and to suspend categorization. And then thinking uh, that in a different situation, the relationship with this person would be totally different. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I just think of when somebody in New York uh, fell into the subway tracks and a total, total stranger jumped in and pressed, went, laid on top of them and pressed them down while the, ten, the train went over. Total stranger. Yeah. And, and you think, you know, these situations change all the time. And then you think of the, pers- the people that you were close to when you were young who have become strangers or enemies, the people who were enemies who you met in a different situation, now they're friends, or the people, you know, who were friends or enemies who have become strangers, and how these things change all the time. So you can look at, at this whole thing from a variety of different ways, but it all gets you to the point of, you know, suspending judgment and realizing that uh, we have to dissolve these categories of friend, enemy, and stranger and just see kind mother sentient being who is immersed in samsara, that that's the general description of everybody yeah and at first when we think of the people we we adore and think are wonderful to think okay the kind mother sentient being i can accept but who are you know overwhelmed by their afflictions in samsara well i don't want to think about them in that condition but it's true that's who they are yeah that's their experience and the people you know, who I usually see is like, you know, kind of, well, you just, you even include mosquitoes and bugs and, you know, whatever kind of animal or insect or human being you're afraid of, yeah, and and then 
you know, may all sentient beings have happiness in its causes. Well, I don't want them to have happiness in its causes and be free from suffering in its causes. I don't like them. But then, you know, you see, oh, in a different situation, it's, it could be totally different. And this is all coming from my mind. So I have, to, and the situations change so much. So I have to, you know, see they too are just like the person who I thought was wonderful in that they are also a kind mother sentient being. They've been kind to me in previous lives and will be kind to me now and in the future. And they are immersed in cyclic existence. So we're all equal in in that kind of aspect. So all these judgments and likes and dislikes on my part are really quite um, unrealistic. And and having them, holding on to them, is really a, a hindrance in my spiritual practice. Because I can't, you know, no way I can generate bodhicitta with that kind of mind. And so that's why it comes, you know, the equilibrium comes as before you even get into equalizing and exchanging self and others. And before you even get into the seven-point cause and effect. 